Welcome to Risk Sleep Repeat, a podcast that features influential guest speakers from the world of fire, health and safety. We're going to focus on trust-based safety, owning and embracing risk and the importance of people over paperwork. Hosted by me, Adam Clark, Managing Director and Mike Stevens, CEO of Practice 42. If you're a fire, health and safety professional, join us for inspirational conversations about the future of our industry. Today, I'm joined by Andrea White, an independent fire engineer, fire risk assessor and chartered safety professional with her own consultancy, AW Fire Limited. The strapline for AW Fire is dedicated to competence and it's a mantra Andrea has sought to follow throughout her career, gaining several professional registrations and becoming a fellow of the IFE. In 2022, Andrea was voted an influencer within the fire safety industry by IFSEC Global. She is founder and director of Women Talking Fire, an independent women's support and networking group for the UK fire safety industry. It's great that you've been able to join us today and thanks for uh, being able to give up some of your time and obviously you're busy. So that's great. So the last time we, we met up, we had a great conversation around you know where you came from to be where you are now in terms of being a leader in your field. And um, I think... The listeners like to understand where people have come from. So yeah, if you could do that, that'd be really great. So I originally planned to be a forester. And when I left Sixth Form College, I joined the Forestry Commission as uh, an administrative officer. And I spent nearly four years working for the Forestry Commission on um, a department called harvesting, which means timber production. And my plan then was to go off to university get a degree in forestry and go back to the Forestry Commission as a forester. Uh, That didn't quite happen as intended. I started my degree and by the end of it, I had a slightly different degree, uh, which meant that I couldn't go into forestry because it had to be a pure forestry degree. So I ended up instead going into estate management and looking after buildings. And my first job after university was looking after the buildings at the local technical college. And uh, while I was looking after the buildings there, nobody wanted to do health and safety. And there was this discussion of, you know, somebody's got to do health and safety. And, you know, a very young version of me said, I'll do it. Um, and they kindly paid for me to do some of those initial qualifications. I think it was the MVQ level three and the NEBOSH certificate back then. And so that was my first sort of foray into a subject I'd never even heard of before, which was health and safety. And it was really useful because you think about a technical college, um, it's actually lots of different businesses all on one premises, isn't it? All on one campus. So there was hairdressing, there was beauty, there was car maintenance, there was engineering, there was construction, you know, and and I got to do a bit of health and safety in all of those disciplines. So that was my first sort of taste of of health and safety. And I I realized that I was actually, my skill set was quite well matched to working in that sort of industry. So I, I moved on and did some more premises management jobs for the county council. And that that was uh, involving um, social services premises. So that was care homes for the county council. And uh, that involved a lot of working on um, 
safety aspects and buying furniture and organising uh, maintenance projects in, in care homes in the county. And it also involved dealing with um, regulators. So people like environmental health for the kitchens and the fire service in terms of the fire officer for the care homes. I then decided that it would be a really good idea to get some regulatory experience because I couldn't quite understand their perspective. And I thought if I, you know, I suppose it's the old adage, isn't it? If you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> so uh, I thought I'll, I'll try that. And I I actually applied to join both the HSE as an inspector and the fire service as a fire safety inspector at the same time. There were jobs going in my area for both. And I interviewed for both of them. And I was I was fortunate enough to get both of those jobs. Yeah, so I had then a, a dilemma I had to choose. Did I want to go and work for the HSE or did I want to go and work for the fire service? And uh, I plumped for the fire service. That was nearly 25 years ago and I've been in fire safety ever since that's brilliant and and on that you know that route which people have gone on in their careers is that if you don't not get out your comfort zone but you don't try you don't ever score do you so so that was a great result then wasn't it to get either the HSE or the fire service um what did they then do to help you get to where you needed to get to then well that was back in the day when they had just started to take on people who were called green book staff as fire safety inspectors so they were non-operational so up until that point fire officers fire safety inspecting officers were all operational staff who then moved across to this department which in those days was called technical fire safety and I was one of the earliest uh, green book so non-operational fire safety inspectors And then on top of that, I also chose to train as a retained firefighter so that I could get a bit more knowledge about operational firefighting. But back then there was there was five courses. They were they were courses A to E in in fire safety. And each course was three weeks long. And you went up to the fire service college in Morton in the Marsh and you did each of your courses. You did a three week stint up there to do each of A through to E in order to become a fully qualified fire safety inspector. What a great opportunity and uh, to then have that with all those people that have either maybe done it before or others that are learning at the same pace or not maybe at the same pace and all helping together to get to, to that point. So when did they actually unleash you, so to speak, and say you can go and uh, go and prosecute people? You're given a warrant card almost immediately well, I certainly was. I mean, whether that's the case now, I'm not sure. But but yeah, um, I think now there is um, perhaps a role before fire safety inspector. Um, I'm not quite sure what that's called, but but I think there's a there's a more graduated entry into becoming a fire safety inspector. But back then there wasn't. Um, so yeah, I had my warrant card, um, but actually doing anything formally, you know, up to something like a prohibition notice, there's there's lots of things that you would have to do and people you would have to discuss that action with before you could actually do anything like that. Um, but yeah, I spent four or five years um, in Hampshire visiting premises and, um, you know, checking on the, the fire safety aspects in terms of regulatory requirements. Yeah. 
So did they have a, a program where you were, uh, you went out with somebody, so you saw one, you maybe had a opportunity to comment on what they did and that kind of thing. So was there like a coaching mentoring program in that? Not hugely. I mean, there was the, the fire service college courses. I'm trying to think back. Um, I mean, you, you worked, so, so for me, back in those days, there were a lot more fire safety inspectors than there are today, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was sitting in an office with three other inspectors and next door were two other managers. So, you know, there was a team of six of us and, and that was quite normal in an, in an office, you know, in a fire safety office. So, you know, there were lots of people that you could talk to and, and discuss things with. Yeah, and I think it sort of goes back to our discussion around how do we get to this point of uh, competency, which is the uh, the area which uh, interests me in terms of how how do you ensure that you have colleagues which are, or in my case, a, a business which has people which are competent. So uh, this this thing of uh, how do you judge that? And uh, you can bring somebody in or somebody that gets appointed or become takes on responsibilities um, as a manager or a senior person. How do you start to try and figure out what is competency? Because at the end of the day, it's the employer's responsibility or the duty holder's responsibility. So where do you start in terms of trying to describe that from where you are now? In my career, I've always been that individual who seeks out and agrees to do the courses so you know in the forestry commission I found out that there was a um, a scheme that allowed you to take any relevant course and the forestry commission the government will pay for you to do that so I went off and did an HND in business and finance because that was relevant to my my job in the fire service, they were offering an HND at the local college in fire safety engineering. And, and I said, yes, I would like to do that. So I suppose from my perspective, um, it, it's maybe about a mindset of, of sort of continual and never ending improvement. That sounds quite a grand phrase, doesn't it? But but yeah, it's it it's about it's about sort of constantly being maybe vigilant about your competence and actually being actively involved and and paying heed to what you perhaps do and don't know an organization's point of view it's it's a tricky one because i think you know you don't know what you don't know do you that that's the tricky bit and i think particularly if you're managing technical disciplines and you don't have that technical dis- discipline yourself and it's very hard to be able to make a judgment on where the gaps are, if you like, because we know that competence is skills, knowledge, um, experience. And then we've got this new B, haven't we? Skeb, B for behaviour. But it's actually what does that look like in real life? I think that's that's perhaps the tricky bit is is what what does competence actually mean on a day to day level? In a broader sense, in, a, in an organisation, that, that level of competency needs some time to be spent on 
agreeing and deciding what that might look like. So at a senior level, for example, on, on a, a board of directors, do you need to have a director of safety or do you have somebody that actually uh, ensures that the board understands what their responsibilities are and how to execute those? I think my preference is for the latter because what I see often is that one individual has kind of almost drawn the short straw yeah. and has that responsibility and therefore everybody else thinks, well, it's not my department. And I think I'm not sure that's quite correct in our legislation and our legal um, responsibilities. And I don't know that morally it's terribly helpful either or culturally. If we if we start putting safety solely onto the responsibility of one individual, even if it's a safety officer or a, you know, a, a board member who's responsible for safety, by implication, it then means, well, nobody else is responsible for safety. And I, I'm not sure that's that's helpful. I think what we're actually trying to do is increase awareness and, and make sure that everybody's aware that they do have safety responsibilities. I've observed it firsthand where there's been a, a safety director, which had another role as well it had um, who had finance responsibilities as well but you could actually see when it got to that point about well is this like a something we need to consult on either with the union or with it with where, and it's a safety thing and it's like everybody was like throwing him the ball and it's like hold on a minute and you just thought come on this is about how how do you make sure that you're executing your responsibilities and it's great that you sort of conclude the same really um and when I've read the, I don't like to refer to the legislation too much, but when you think about the guidance which comes with this is that it talks about appointing competent resource. And it's about resources, I think, is the way that it, it needs to be interpreted, is that uh, throughout the organisation, people need to be competent in what they're doing from the, you know, the junior or the apprentice, all the way up to the CE and um, and, and the, you know, the, the shareholders, because there's lots of, obviously, the um, responsibilities of those which are like either shareholders or those that have got an interest in the ESG part of it all. So I think that thing, thing about competency, I suppose we've we focused on what's come out recently, of course, is that there's a big emphasis on competency based on the findings from Grenfell, of course. So we can look at it as practitioners and those which have those sort of technical responsibilities, but it's also the, the telescope or was was actually pointed elsewhere as well. So from from what's happened recently, then what what do you see is going forward with uh, the findings that, that have come out of the inquiry? Well, I think one really important point about competency is is an end part of the sentence um, of the definition of competence that I learned when I did my you know Nibosh certificate and Nibosh diploma. You know, we talked about skills, knowledge, and experience and someone who knows their limitations. And and I've looked more recently for a definition of competence. And, and you know, it, it's still there. There's still a definition of competence. But that second part of the sentence, that second part of the definition isn't there anymore. That and knows their limitations seems to, for some reason, have disappeared. And that worries me because I think that's a really important part of the definition. If we don't know what our limitations are, then how can we make sure that we are 
doing work competently, that we are remaining within our competence. I mean, clearly, the Grenfell Inquiry has very much highlighted the issue of competence. I've, I've been in the industry, as I say, for almost 25 years, and I've kind of watched um, some changes to to how we perhaps measure competence and how we train people and give them that competence and I'm I'm not convinced that those changes have been for the better if I'm honest so you know there's been a move towards um, maybe attendance certificates rather than you know certificates that are only given when you have provided demonstrable evidence of your your competence through assessment or exam. I think that we've perhaps reduced the training in terms of duration or the extent of the knowledge that we're we're giving people. And I think, you know, we we've we've probably lost some of that technical knowledge in terms of those who are who were teaching and and so I think when you add those sorts of um, reductions in 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 the quality of of training and yet you have buildings certainly in in my career that have become more more whizzy let's call it more whizzy more complicated we're using different materials we're providing more complicated solutions, particularly in terms of things like fire safety, um, you've, you've kind of, you've widened the gap. You've got more complex buildings and you've got perhaps a lower level of competence. And I think that's, that for me is a gap, you know, that we need to bridge right now. On the flip side of that, there must have been times in your career where you felt like you were at your depth, but you didn't not do something about that. Is that not something as well? Because there's this thing about um, in other organisations that I've worked in, there's been this thing about, no, I can't do that because and I can use the competency thing, which says, well, you know, I can't do that because rather than it being that I could do that, but I need this to get me to there. And that could either be through coaching, mentoring, experience, which is, you know, allowing that. And and hopefully what that does is it puts a more positive spin on it. And to your point about um, this knowing when to stop for me has always been this thing of competency because I've seen some very confident people who were incompetent. <laughs> and it's that, it's that balance between you don't want people to be like, oh, no, I can't do that because of this thing. And you've got other people who are like gung-ho, like, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's, no, that's not a problem. So there's that, there's that element of it. So is that the behaviour part of SCEB or is that just about um, how, how we deal with that as practitioners to say, okay, let's have a balance here about those things, which are not necessarily about going on a course. It's about how can I give you this experience in a controlled way? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point and you do make me smile because I think we've all come across those individuals, haven't we, that, that sound really confident. You know, they, they clearly know a couple of buzzwords and then if you do have some sort of technical background and you listen to them, you, you start to realise that actually hmm, not quite using those words in the correct context or perhaps their their comments are 
you know, fairly superficial rather than there being a huge amount of of understanding beneath that. It's this thing about how how do we, as as practitioners, help those people that may feel that they're in this place where I'm I'm not going to go there because it's either it's a type of building or it's something which is unusual. It's something which, you know, you haven't, but can you apply the principles of what you understand and then have a reference point to then go back to, to say, I'm thinking this, what do you think? You know, it's almost like the old fashioned apprenticeships, isn't it? There was there was a term for it. It was sort of, you know, you watch me do it, then you do the easier bits of it, and then you do the more complicated bits. I'll check, and then you do, and I will watch you. You know, it's that kind of graduated process. I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. I think, however, it's quite resource hungry. It's quite time consuming. And I think it requires quite a bit of organisation. And I think there is an argument in many commercial organisations that time is money, you know, and and the emphasis is on output. I think that sort of disappoints me a little bit because I'm I'm very happy to work hard, but I want to be proud of what I do. I'm keen to take extra courses and learn more because I want to make sure that the work I do I can look back on it and go I'm proud of that and I think that's that's my sort of standpoint when I'm offered work for example I've never done fire safety in hospitals there's specific guidance relating to fire safety in hospitals and I've just never been involved with it And so if people come to me and have a a job that involves fire safety in a hospital, I just say, "That's, that's not my bag and that's not for me. Just as a little anecdote is that I remember going to a client and saying, so we do fire safety and, you know, this is how we are. And was trying to explain all the things around uh, why, it's, why the proposal is that price. And they said, uh, yeah, that's okay. But actually, we've got the, the guy, there's a pest control, does our fire risk assessments for us because they're in the building at the same time. And it's a bit like, yeah, fine. But, <laughs> and is that, and I just, you know, immediately you go, ooh, you know, is that person competent, which is probably a bit of a disservice, but is it just because they can do it because they'll do that as, a, as an aside? The same as they'll do the fire extinguisher testing for you or whatever, and I'll do you a bit of a fire risk assessment on the way. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what I find really interesting when people contact me about work is they've clearly decided that I am competent. And I'm always quite curious how they've made that decision. And even if you've got a large organisation and that organisation has agreed to undertake some work, you know, it's how you decide that a particular individual is competent to do that particular piece of work. That interests me because I'm I'm not sure that we've quite 
got enough of a handle on whether people's post-nominals actually demonstrate that competence, whether their certificates actually demonstrate that competence. I've got nothing against experience demonstrating competence. But, you know, just because someone has done a a certain type of work for the last 10, 20, 30 years doesn't mean they were doing it correctly. So, you know, when someone says to me, ah, but I've done this for a very long time, and and I I can't dispute that, but the difference is, you know, there is a difference between doing it for a long time and doing it correctly. You know, they're, they're two different aspects. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's about asking the right questions. I think somewhere in there is probably third party accreditation in terms of a peer or a group of peers have considered what you've put in front of them and determined that you are competent, sufficiently competent to be third party accredited. But again, you know, if you're using that as a benchmark, do you know the limitations of that? Do you know actually what they've demonstrated their competence in? You know, because if it's only very simple buildings or it's only you know, one aspect, then you can't then say that that competence relates to something outside of that necessarily. So I think, I think there's, you know, it's important not to have blind faith in pieces of paper, letters and and experience. I think what I would like to see is sort of almost more interrogation of those to be able to identify that people are competent. And that competency thing is that you're competent today, but you know you have to look at what's happening tomorrow. So it's a, it's a continuum, isn't it? It's not about, I've got one of those, that's it, move on. And um, on the third party element of that, just um, you know, from our point of view is that you know, we, we're accredited externally as Praxis 42, but the, the, the point being for for others is that is that the criteria in which you get selected upon is that the starting point is the question to then ask for well, so what can you then do and in project management as you know the the, the biggest part of that is that the, the project is declared a project for a purpose so it's because we probably haven't done it before so it's a bit of an unknown but how many times have you done a project where there's no project review at the end and you then go so, okay, so how is that for you? Nobody asked that. And you go off and you do another one. And it's like, uh, okay, so how is, and nobody asked that. And that's another part of this, you know, you, rec- you recruited somebody or you employed somebody or you engaged somebody that's on the register. But then did you actually say, did it do what you wanted it to do? And how do you then ask those questions? So you, having an external review is a way of making sure that, and that goes into the mix, doesn't it? I think that's, that's a, a really good point. I think often we we miss out on that opportunity hugely. I think when anyone receives criticism, it's uncomfortable. So, you know, I have several mentors and if there's a piece of work that I feel I'd like them to to review, I'll send it to them and they'll give me my comments. And and I do um, I do expert witness work as well for the courts. I remember 
the first briefing note that I wrote as an expert witness. And uh, I'd sent it off to be technically reviewed. And uh, I was sitting at my desk and I opened it up and the whole thing was covered in track changes. I mean, you, you, you know, it was, it was just a field of colors uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to the point where I, I, I actually went downstairs and made a cup of tea and took a deep breath before I came back again. I was like, wow. But actually, it, it wasn't as bad as it looked. Track changes does make it, does, it look really it? bad, yeah. doesn't it? But you don't learn unless you're in that state of discomfort. If if you if it was all perfect, I haven't learned anything. So actually, as hard as it was, I could see that this was a really good learning opportunity. And it's the same at the end of a project, isn't it? This is a really good opportunity not to, you know, bash someone over the head for getting something wrong, but mm. actually identify where we can do better next time, yeah. you know? And I, But I think we have to have that mindset and that ability to receive criticism in the way it was given and to, to act on it. You know, I think that is the point, because if we're not going to do that, then how are we ever going to learn and grow and be better? So so you're absolutely right. I think I think, you know, there is a lot to be said for, you know, asking somebody else to look at what you've done, whose opinion you value Mm. And asking them to be honest and give you constructive feedback and criticism. I think that's, you know, that's a fantastic way Mm. in my book to to improve your competence. And it doesn't involve, you know, spending money on a course necessarily. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's the thing where you think, well, what do they mean by behavior? And that is behavior. That Mm. is positive behavior. That's about um, being humble. And then recognizing that you, you do need to have that, and I think it's a great, that example of you becoming a uh, you know a, uh, a expert witness must have been quite uncomfortable because I've I've heard of people doing. I'm just thinking standing in a court of law or something to be asked all these questions. You must have felt really uncomfortable, but that's this thing about you know the competency thing is a journey, which means sometimes you are uncomfortable and you then you get there and it's about achieving it. And then, but to have somebody to help you to get to that place, you know, I think that's a brilliant example of what we were talking about earlier on in the, in the podcast. I think the thing I've learned probably in the last five years is if, if you never try, you'll never know. And I'm willing now to try and I'm willing to potentially fail or look stupid or or whatever you know make a fool of myself I'm happy to do that to know that I've tried rather than to fear that and not try and I think that's that's a real shift because I spent a long time you know not trying stuff in case I didn't do it right in case I didn't you know do a good job in case I failed Mm. But actually, it's having that growth mindset, isn't it? And thinking, no, come on, what, what's the worst that can happen? There's risk everywhere to move from where you are to where, where is how much risk you want to take. And, you know, nobody's going, going to get it right all the time, which, and, you know, this fear thing always seems to get in the way. But how did you, how did you get to the point where you had your conference recently? Could you just tell us a little bit about that and how, what you got out of it and what everybody else got out of it? That'd be really good if you would. So um, to my knowledge... This was the first women's conference in the fire safety industry. 
and it was run by the um, IFE, the Institution of Fire Engineers Women's Networking Group. And it was a conference held in Winchester at a very nice hotel. And we welcomed 140 people to that conference. So the conference was full. And yeah, it was it was um, it was a really inspiring day. We had fantastic feedback. And now that I've moved across to an independent group called Women Talking Fire and set that up as a kick, a community interest company, uh, our plans are to hold a similar conference twice a year once in the north and once in the south every year as an opportunity for women to get together. Everybody is welcome, but, you know, an opportunity for us to meet and support each other and to network, find new contacts and and learn together. And I think the thing that I really, I hoped it would be positive environment. And I think from the feedback forms that uh, people kindly completed, I think it was it was everything I hoped um, and and more really. And when we when we spoke before, we were talking about um, in somebody becoming competent, or in in general as a as a practitioner, um, whether it be health and safety, fire safety, fire life safety, um, is mentoring and uh, coaches. And um, I think you put it that where do you find them and then who do you choose um and i think while well, i wrote down about being discerning yes i mean it's difficult isn't it I, I i'm always curious how many people actually have a mentor and um i'm surprised at how few people do i mean i genu- genuinely generally have about three mentors at any one time and there'll be mentors in different things. So when I started up my own business, I had someone who I approached and asked them for help with marketing because I'm not I'm not a marketing person. Mm. And they'd run their own fire safety business for many years. They were retired now and their particular expertise was in marketing. And they were amazing, you know, and that's what he was able to to help me with. Then I have technical mentors, you know, people that I admire. I think the interesting thing for me is that people, we go back to this sort of, you don't know if you don't try. People don't, they seem quite reluctant to actually go and ask people. And I think that's a shame. I can't think of anyone who I've asked to be a mentor who said no to me. So, you know, if people are fearful of actually being rejected, I'm not sure that's as likely to happen as people perhaps worry about and actually again what's the worst that can happen I'm sure someone isn't going to you know proverbially slam the door in your face I'm sure they're going to say it nicely and actually okay so try try again it's that book isn't it uh was it was it called rejection it was a it was a a chap who wrote a book about Um, He spent a year, I think it was, just going around and asking people ridiculous questions so that he could hear the word no. And by the end of it, he wasn't bothered about the word no anymore. So I think it's important to have people who you can ask questions of, who you can lean on in some way professionally. And that could be within your business or or outside of your business. But I, I do think it's really important to be discerning. 
So, you know, what are you asking that person to mentor you in and, and, and why? Can you articulate why you feel they would be good as a mentor in X? I think just having a mentor because they're your mate or because they're your boss, I'm not sure that's necessarily always the criteria. But the one last thing you, you mentioned uh, when we, we got together was that as part of this thing about people's uh, competency, you mentioned the thing about the use of testimonials. And um, I think that's maybe goes back to where I was saying, if, it, if there was a project and it concluded, you know, what was that like? It helps not necessarily being that somebody writes you a, a nice testimonial, but you've had that opportunity to review your performance. So... Yeah, I mean, I I introduced something when I set up my own consultancy. After I finished doing a piece of work for a client, I send them an email and say, I'm interested in your feedback. And good or bad, I I want to do better. I'd really appreciate any comments you're willing to give me. And for any email I receive back, irrespective of what the contents is, I'll donate £10 to charity. Um, And, you know, most people um, are happy to send that email, you know, and that's all constructive criticism, isn't it? And and I'm I'm very happy to to take that to one, as you say, as potential testimonials, but also, you know, if I'm not doing something quite right, how how am I going to know if I don't ask my clients, you know, their view as well as asking someone to peer review from a technical point of view? I think the clients can offer you a a different perspective on on how you're doing. Where do you find your opportunity to get CPD? Yeah, so most professional organisations, if you are a member, they expect you to have around 25 hours of CPD continuing professional development each year, don't they? And I think the thing that surprises me sometimes is is quite how people are selecting that CPD. I think there's potentially room for better decision making. I would really like more people to be looking at things like competence criterias, uh, competence frameworks, and actually do a bit of a gap analysis and think, okay, so this is what the competence criterion, and you know, there's blueprint that IOSH has for safety, people in safety. Um, there's the Fire Sector Federation does one, and um, that's for fire risk assessors. The SFPE do one for fire engineers. All of these are online. And actually sit down with that list and then just, you know, okay, no, I don't really know too much about that. And actually that's something that is relevant to what Mm -hmm. the work that I do. And I think the other thing about CPD is that there's, there's there's a bit of a misnomer that CPD all has to be technical. And actually, if you look at something like the engineering council or these competence criterias, um, that the UK spec for the engineering council, that there's, probably about 60% of it is non-technical. So things like ethics, behavior, working with people, uh, managing projects, you know, all of which are are non-technical. And I'm not sure how many people appreciate that, you know, listening to a podcast on competence, listening to this podcast, you know, would count as CPD. 
listening to a podcast from someone you know on confidence building or on um better interaction yeah. with people or doing a course on public speaking you know all of those things would be valid very valid cpd you know youtube valid cpd my fire engineering at the pub i could say that that's cpd shadowing people mentoring listening to podcasts like this i think it's helpful for people to understand quite how wide the remit is and how many different media forms CPD can take. I think there's people are probably doing way more CPD than they realise. But actually what I'd like to see is it more, like you say, more targeted to actually filling in the gap in their competence. Yeah, rather than being a sheep dip of have one of these because you'll get two hours for that. So no, it's, it's music to my ears. So uh, it's really great that you've you raised that, and um, it's up for all those listeners to think about that in terms of how they go about yeah, it. Yeah, I would love for people to come up to me and say, "I've got a career development plan now." You know, I've done that gap analysis. I've worked out what my map is, what my career development plan is, and you know, my next three years are going to involve X, Y, and Z um, learning around those topics, and I'm going to use this podcast and this. YouTube channel and you know I'm going to go to this seminar or this conference that would be that would be really meaningful CPD yeah and I'd like to just overlay on that the thing about it that is the individual's responsibility the employer has a part to play but at the end of the day it's about an individual finding those things which they believe because sometimes you can't perceive where their gaps are you can't you know, investigate that or see that unless you actually could do things like accompanied visits, for example, and you start to see those things, which are, you know, the nuance of, you know, how did you deal with the duty holder or the individual that was representing the duty holder at the site, for example, how did you introduce yourself? You know, how did you present the information back? Yes, and I, I think that's a good point. I think getting feedback from the client or somebody you work with and actually saying to them, look, I'm asking because I would really like your honest opinion. How do you think I come across in meetings? Or I, I did that presentation. Can you give me some feedback, some constructive criticism on that? Because obviously, for those sorts of things, it's very difficult to mark your own homework objectively, isn't it? So I think to actually sort of step back and think, well, who could I ask who would give me some honest feedback? Do your clients understand the reports that you write? Are they written for the audience? It's all very well writing the, the best report in the world, but if the intended audience doesn't understand it, then it, it's sort of irrelevant. You know, have you considered who else might read your report? Have you looked at your continuing professional development in kind of a, a wider sense and, and you know, said to, to somebody else who might read your report, what do you think? If you had to read my report for whatever reason, is it suitable and sufficient or, or sufficiently comprehensive from your perspective? I think all of those sorts of aspects are things that we need to probably sit down and, and, and deliberate on in order to come up with a career development plan. And I, I'm not sure that we're quite at that stage yet. I think I'd like to, I'd like to see that happening more often. 
It's been really great to spend some time and hearing what you've got to say is it's like music to my ears and and hopefully for the people who will be listening in, uh, the listener, that they get a lot out of it. Obviously, you know, we're always here as individuals because we'd like to help anybody that needs that it's in our DNA because we'd like to mentor and coach. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm always happy to uh, receive the emails or the LinkedIn messages. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, I'm sure we'll meet up again soon. Thanks so much for listening to Risk Sleep Repeat. If you'd like to appear on the show, if there's a topic you'd like to discuss, or if you want to let us know your thoughts, please do so using the hashtag Risk Sleep Repeat or get in touch via our website at praxis42.com.